the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finn. We've got a great show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we'll be doing a rebroadcast of Andrew Powinscher, who wrote a book called The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton. It's a great interview. You really like it. It's a great book. I recommend it. In the second half hour of the show, we'll be talking about the portion of the week. The portion is Bo. We're in the middle of the Exodus story. We're going to actually talk about the firstborn that plague. I've got a great story. It's real. This is like classic Baal Shem Tov story at the end. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. Israel approved a one billion shekel Golan Heights development plan. That's about three hundred and fifty million dollars. The funds would be used for the construction of two new communities in the Golan, double the area's population, and turn it into a renewable energy capital. Let's keep your eyes out on that one. Israel shot sea-to-surface missiles, destroying an Iranian weapons arsenal in the Syrian port of Latakia. No one was hurt. An Israeli construction worker was shot and wounded along the Gaza border. Israel responded with artillery fire on Hamas sites. Fire gutted the Chabad house of suburban San Jose. The arson was caught on surveillance. Authorities are looking for the suspect. Pieces, this is really interesting news, pieces of a long-lost Torah scroll returned to the city of Garlitz in southeast Germany. The synagogue there was destroyed during Kristallnacht in 1938, and the Torah disappeared. A member of the Hitler Youth took the Torah from the burning building and kept it in hiding, eventually telling his son, who this week returned it. 
The Greek Jewish community of Thessaloniki is celebrating the return of a trove of manuscripts and community documents that the Nazis stole 80 years ago. The manuscripts were taken to the Russian Library Archives and declared a Russian inherited property. The Russians finally agreed to return them to their rightful owners. And finally, Illinois divested state pension funds from Unilever. This is in response to its subsidiary, Ben & Jerry, to stop selling their products in the West Bank. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital, the same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have on line Andrew Porwanger, who has written a very interesting book. This is an eye-raising just title. It's called The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton, which it doesn't need like one of those subtitles because that's that's enough in of itself. How are you, Andrew? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well, and I, I appreciate your endorsement of my decision to opt out of a subtitle. Okay. <laughs> Subtitles are there so that people can, like, when they're doing searches and they need to have, like, you know, some kind of something and you want to get a hook on the book. But if you're, anybody who's thinking, is Alexander Hamilton Jewish? And they're going to type in the word Jewish, Alexander Hamilton. This is going to come up. It's immediate. It's, a, it's like uh, it's a no-brainer. Okay, so. That's what we're banking on, yeah. When I first saw the title, so two, two things popped into my head. Thing number one, oh, Al Hamilton the Musical. What was your how did that affect your decision of writing this book? Because very often, books are written to be sold, and so if it's a topic that people are interested in, because they everybody knows about Hamilton now, whereas like ten years ago they didn't. So what 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 effect did the the musical have on your decision to write this book? It was far more fortuitous. I had actually begun this book before the musical came out. Uh, that's how long I've been working on the book. I started teaching constitutional history at the University of Oklahoma back in 2011. And I love to bring in biographical details of the historical figures we cover to make documents like the Federalist Papers less of a bloodless abstraction and more of a flesh and blood artifact of humanity. And what I found was that Hamilton had this really striking history. He had a mother named Rachel Levine. She enrolled him in a Jewish school. And so I started diving in to his origin story and first floated the idea to an editor as early as 2013 and really started to pick up the book in earnest in early 2015. And six months later, the musical had its Broadway debut and Hamilton became 
this iconic figure in American culture. It, it was really uh, a matter of, of serendipity more than commercial strategy. Okay. The second thing that entered my head was, oh, yeah, Elvis had a Jewish grandmother, too. Right. So I'm sure you've got a lot of some, some pushback from that, that thinking like Alexander Hamilton, the founder of the Federal, Brazil, Federal Bank of New York, the, one of the, the, the framers of the Constitution, and you're telling me he was Jewish? Question mark, exclamation point. What led you to, sure. believe, what, what led you to that? Well, it wasn't any one piece of evidence. It's rather a mosaic of articles of evidence. So to give you the elevator version, Hamilton's mother, we know, was born a Gentile in the British Caribbean. But I believe there are compelling reasons to think that she may have converted to Judaism for marriage. She marries a Danish merchant named Johan Levine, whom Hamilton's own grandson explicitly refers to as a, quote, rich Danish Jew. And they have a son, Rachel and Johan, named Peter Levine, who, as an adult, ends up taking a baptism as part of joining an Anglican church under circumstances. only makes sense if he would be converting to Christianity. And then Rachel has this other son, Alexander, who she bears out of wedlock, and she enrolls him in a Jewish school at a time when all the evidence in the historical record suggests that Jewish schools exclusively educated Jewish children. He tells a story to his children, uh, Alexander Hamilton does, that when he was little, his teacher would put him on a table, presumably so they would be eye level, and he would recite to her Ten Commandments in the original Hebrew. And so this is, this is a very short version of seven years of research boiled down in, into a minute. But all of these reasons create a strong circumstantial case that Hamilton, in all likelihood, had a Jewish identity in his Caribbean youth. Okay, to say the least. So if Alexander himself was not Jewish, at least he had some kind of Jewish identity, um, some kind of uh, wherewithal with Jews. So it's very interesting. Uh, I had a uh, my fifth and sixth grade teacher was a very big fan, believe it or not, of Alexander Hamilton. We were talking about the Constitution back then, so he liked Alexander Hamilton, and we we were under the you know he he would teach us that of all of the the founding fathers, he was the one who wanted to make America free for all religions, not just for all Christians. So let's delve into that a little bit. The, the background of Alexander Hamilton and uh, his, his uh, shaping his philosophy then, Andrew Porwanger. I'm so glad that you asked that question because the sexy argument about might Hamilton have had a Jewish identity sometimes eclipses the latter half of the book, which is really about Hamilton's relationship with the American Jewish community in these critical years of the, of the early republic when America is in this inchoate stage of self-definition. Hamilton does not identify as Jewish in his adulthood, and yet what is so striking about Alexander Hamilton in these formative years of American democracy is that he emerges as a champion of religious equality for Jews, just as 
complicated. And this advocacy for Jews at a time anti-Semitism was often wielded as a political cudgel takes a variety of forms. As an influential alumnus of his alma mater, Columbia, is instrumental in putting the first Jew on the board of an American college. He helps do away with mandatory forms of Christian worship for undergrads, and he changes the Columbia Charter so that the office of the college presidency is open to Christians and Jews alike. Okay. Hamilton, of course— did you have a question about that? No, no, no. Go ahead. Continue. Finish just your thought. Oh, sure. So I'll, I'll just add two other examples of Hamilton's commitment to this principle that Jew and Gentile should stand upon an equality. One is in his role as Treasury Secretary. He's, of course, best remembered as the visionary of America's financial future and so many Jews are disproportionately involved in trade and banking for want of opportunity in other professions. Jews in most states can't run for political office. They can't become lawyers. They can't become college professors. And so they turn instead to finance and trade. And Hamilton is instrumental in invigorating the very sectors of the economy that are, in a sense, the most small-D democratic, the most open to the aspirations of Jewish outsiders. Hamilton is also striking for his support for Jews in his capacity as New York City's preeminent litigator. He becomes the go-to lawyer for America's leading Jewish citizens. And in fact, it is in the courtroom when Hamilton's Jewish witnesses are denigrated merely for being Jews, and their testimony is questioned purely because of their religious profession, Hamilton uses the courtroom as a forum to fulminate against this kind of pernicious Jew hatred. And so in all of these respects, Hamilton, more than any other American founder, becomes an outspoken advocate for equality between Jews and Gentiles. Okay, cool. Now, knowing the personalities of the other founding fa founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution, they didn't pull any punches. How come we don't see in any of the letters of, say, Jefferson or Washington or one of the Adamses or, or John Hancock, any of the, uh, the, the people that were involved, that they refer to Hamilton as that Jew? Well, Hamilton does not identify as Jewish in adulthood, and we have no indication that he divulges to anyone a Jewish past. Hamilton was notoriously taciturn about all aspects of his upbringing, and for a statesman whose acceptance into the upper echelons of American civic life required at least a nominal pretense to a Christian identity— it would have been prudent, to say the least, for him to obscure any Jewish heritage. And so I don't believe that Hamilton's political rivals would have any basis to think that he was himself Jewish. But what is so striking about Hamilton is that even though he is, again, nominally a professing Christian, 
although he doesn't really go to church or take communion, he's nominally Christian, and yet no other Christian in early America is subjected to more anti-Semitism than Hamilton because his various agendas uh, are often met with anti-Semitic hostility. Hamilton, for instance, is one of the foremost advocates for ratification of the Constitution, and many of Hamilton's opponents try to defeat his effort because the Constitution opens federal office to Jews and Gentiles alike. Hamilton's uh, bid to make America one of the foremost economic and banking powers is also met with hostility that's infused with anti-Semitism. He's accused of pursuing this agenda purely to enrich greedy Jews. And so Hamilton himself wasn't pegged as a Jew, but he was certainly accused of being in league with Jews. Okay, understood. Let's let's go back to the beginning a bit. Okay, so in 2011, you have this idea that you're going to do some research into something that in the last 250 years no one has ever done before. How did you go about finding material to prove your thesis that Alexander Hamilton was either Jewish or had Jewish ties? I first grew suspicious all the way back in 2011 when I first started teaching material about Hamilton, and these thoughts nagged at me that perhaps the conventional wisdom that he was a cradle-to-grave Christian might well be erroneous, but I didn't really fully pursue it until I got a grant, I think it was late 2014 or early 2015, to actually go down to the Caribbean islands of Hamilton's youth and poke around some of the archives there. And this led me to archives in the European capitals of the countries that colonized some of the islands he was on, which led me to further archives in the United States. And so I ended up going on this multi-year, far-flung journey across islands, across different nations, and slowly piecing together what obscure details there were to be had about Hamilton's origins. And much of what I looked at involved taking assumptions that historians have long made about Hamilton and other people in his life and subjecting them to scrutiny. So, for instance, Hamilton scholars have long suggested that he went to the Jewish school because he must have been denied an infant baptism on account of the fact that he was born out of wedlock. And if he couldn't be infant baptized, then he couldn't go to the church school, and that must be why he went to the Jewish school. Now, what I did, which other Hamilton scholars had not, was actually go through the church records. And I found that children born out of wedlock, both on his native island and indeed throughout the Caribbean, were routinely infant baptized despite their illegitimacy. So much of my work involved consulting archives about which historians made claims but hadn't themselves perused. Okay, interesting. So describe, um, from what I understand, Hamilton didn't grow up on one of the major islands in the Caribbean, but so it wasn't like Curacao or Barbados that had that we know they have these these uh, synagogues that were in existence from the time of the 1600s. Tell us about Jewish life on the island where Hamilton grew up, if you know. If you know. Certainly. Hamilton grows up on 
the British Caribbean island of Nevis, at least for the first 11 years of his life. And yet, to be sure, as you point out, Nevis does not have the sizable Jewish community of a Dutch island like Curacao or an island like Barbados, but there is still a non-trivial Jewish community. Fully one-fourth of the free population of Nevis was Jewish, and Jews there did have a functioning synagogue. We know that there was a school because Hamilton says that he went to it. They had a Jewish cemetery, which still exists to this day, a beautiful Sephardic-style cemetery in Charlestown, the main port town in Nevis. And so the Jewish community there was made up of largely traders and merchants, some plantation owners, folks that are involved in commerce, some folks that are involved in the sugar economy that runs on slave labor at the time. And this was a community that, in a sense, is doing quite well. They've escaped the reaches of the Inquisition. They're Sephardic Jews, Portuguese Jews, who have hopped from Portugal to Brazil to Nevis, and they're gaining a foothold in the British Caribbean. And on the other hand, they're also subjected to the residue of old world anti-Semitism. And so Hamilton comes of age amid a Jewish community in Nevis that has both the opportunities presented by the new world and yet is still populated by settlers beholden to old world anti-Semitism. Cool. Okay. So he's on Nevis till age 11 and he's, we have, you have, you found records that he was in a, uh, a student at the local Jewish day school, I guess you would call it for all intents and purposes. What happened at age 11 before a, a bar mitzvah we're talking would might've been, Right. So Hamilton and his mother wind up on the Danish Caribbean island of St. Croix. And the mother runs a store out of the first floor of a building, and the family lives on the second story. And this arrangement continues for a couple of years until his mother falls tragically ill and dies prematurely. And Hamilton is left a dispossessed orphan. And I suspect that any Jewish identity Hamilton might have had in all likelihood dies with his mother on St. Croix, because not only would his familial ties to Judaism have been severed, but Hamilton is no longer on Nevis with its relatively sizable Jewish community, with its school that had educated him. He's on St. Croix, which is home to just a few scattered Jews. And so I strongly suspect that a youth as plucky and precocious as Hamilton would have been disinclined to compound his troubles as a penniless orphan with a second-class religious status. That's very interesting. But uh, connection with other relatives, he did have a half-brother, for example. Um, what was with those once his mother passed away? Sure. So Hamilton has two brothers. He has an older brother, full brother named James, and he has this half-brother named Peter. And we know relatively little about them. I can share what we do know. So James, the older full brother, is sent to apprentice with, an, with a uh, carpenter after the death of Hamilton's mother. And we don't really hear from him. And then he shows up in a letter 
that he writes to Alexander in early adulthood asking Alexander for money, and Alexander complains that he hasn't heard from his brother for years. Uh, and one interesting note about this letter is that it comes from the island of St. Thomas, which actually did have a relatively sizable Jewish community in the Danish Caribbean. Whether that's any indication that James maybe himself had attended the Jewish school, maybe himself had some residual Jewish identity is a matter for speculation, but it's interesting to note. The half-brother, Peter, ultimately moves to South Carolina and, as I mentioned before, joins an Anglican church. But to join this church, he undergoes an adult baptism. But Anglicans, by doctrine, practice infant baptism. His adult baptism is a strong indicator that he did not grow up Christian and that, in fact, he converts to Christianity, and that's why he needs an adult baptism. Hamilton scholars have long known that Peter Levine had this adult baptism, but they assume that he grew up Christian, and so they're baffled by his need for an adult baptism. They describe it as curious and inexplicable. But if we countenance the possibility that Hamilton's mother, Rachel, converted to Judaism to marry Levine, then that would make Peter a Jew from birth, and his need for an adult baptism, this long-standing mystery suddenly easily explained okay fascinating so we we've already discussed so where does this take us and we know that the effect that alexander hamilton had in framing the constitution and, and getting jews in, included was he uh on speaking terms or familiar with business dealings with uh, some of the more famous uh finan- jewish financiers Chaim potak or the like Chaim so, Solomon, excuse me, not Chaim Potak, Chaim Solomon. Yeah, I, I, I read uh, some of Chaim Potak's works, including The Chosen as a child, and I'm actually delighted to get his name in on the on this interview because uh, he's, he's such a brilliant author and, and captures such an interesting slice of New York Jewish life. But, yes, Hamilton does have a relationship with Chaim Solomon, who is in some respects the most important Jew of the American Revolution, because he is absolutely central to keeping America financially solvent. Hamilton, as a young 26-year-old, serving as George Washington's right-hand man during the war, finds time in between battles to bone up on his study of economics and finance, and he ends up drafting this lengthy blueprint for America's financial future. And Hamilton has a critical insight, which is that the British army is propped up by British credit, and that America's lack of credit was beleaguering its own endeavor to secure its independence. And what Hamilton realizes is that if America can shore up its financial house, it can more easily bring the war to a close. And he shares this insight with Robert Morris, who was the superintendent of finance during the war. He's effectively the precursor to the position of Treasury Secretary. And Morris tapped Heim Solomon, who's the most prolific bill broker, to serve as the official broker for this newly established Bank of North America that in many ways was the precursor to the Bank of the United States that Hamilton would later create. And Robert Morris effectively weds Hamilton's blueprint for a national bank and a system of credit 
to Heim Solomon, who actually helps bring Hamilton's vision to fruition. And so even in this early stage when Hamilton's only in his 20s, we see a connection between some of the leading Jews involved in American finance and Hamilton's own precocity when it comes to building a national economy and building a national financial system. And that relationship, albeit indirect, between Hamilton and Heim Solomon prefigures a much deeper involvement of Hamilton and the Jewish merchant class to come as he ultimately takes over the reins and becomes America's first Treasury Secretary. Okay, that's cool. We're just about done over here. This is I could talk for the whole entire show about this is a fascinating topic. Uh, I have a geeky question Thank for you. Thank you. I have, I have a very geeky question Please. for you. Okay, on the back, it is common, uh, back, back of the book, it is common for people to have reviews from people who uh, someone will say, oh, look, that person said that about this book. I'm going to go buy it. Okay, you have, without naming a name, a... <laughs> A, a recommendation from somebody from the U.S. Naval War College. Could you explain just briefly what that's all about? Well, you know, that, that particular scholar is a Hamilton biographer. Okay. And, you know, he's, 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 he's had an interesting career, and he was a professor at the University of Virginia, I believe, which is renowned for the, the its its faculty strength in early American history, and he has written more than one book on Alexander Hamilton, and he and I appeared together on a panel about Hamilton at Princeton University, and I was really delighted to have someone of Stephen Knott's stature and renown in the field of Hamilton studies uh, endorse the book. Okay, that explains it. Okay, all my questions have been answered. If you would like to, uh, those listeners out there would like to get this, this is called The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton by Andrew Porwankshire, and it's by Princeton University Press. Uh, it is uh, not a, it's not a hard read. It's, uh, it's delightful, and uh, I highly recommend it. And we thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on and enlightening us. Want Thank assurance you. of Thanks quality so and excellence in kosher? Okay, look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herr Schulfenman here, you're listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, this song was the most listened to song in the state of Israel. The artist is Yishai Rebo. We've played him before. The song is Siba Hasibot, which means the cause of the causes, referring to God. We've played this before. Let's listen to it again. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Enjoyed that. That was Yishai Revoy. Up next for your listening pleasure, this is a Hasidic, excuse me, a Klezmer Hasidic uh, duo of Jeff Warshaw and Deborah Strauss, and this is the Rebbin Niggin, the Rebbe song. <laughs> Thank you. 
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community. And Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shultzman here. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Up next is a very interesting song. The group is Balti and Achia. That's a duo. This is an old Breslover nigan called Vayavo Amalek.
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Shulfman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. This week is the portion of Bo. It can be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 11 and following. There are three plagues. The last three of the ten plagues are in this week's portion. We're going to zoom in on the killing of the firstborn. The commentaries want to make a note of the fact that God said that the plague of the firstborn will be at midnight. And uh, Moses, when he told Pharaoh, said the plague will be around midnight. Then, of course, they say, well, when exactly is midnight? Midnight is less than an instant because it's like when you start dividing things in half, you keep on dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing. So he didn't want Pharaoh to say, oh, look, it was a 12... 12 o'clock and 0.001 seconds. It wasn't at midnight. So what, what's the deal over here? What was the plague of the firstborn? And why, why the at midnight versus around midnight? The instance of midnight is an indication of infinity. Saying around midnight means, I know, listen, in actuality, if you keep dividing things in half, eventually you're going to have nothing. So Moses, being a finite creature, could not relate to the exact instant. It wasn't within his power. The Almighty, being infinite, could relate to something which is infinitesimal. As my, the classic line I like to say is, what can hold infinity? Nothing. Or if you have nothing in your pocket, how much nothing do you have? An infinite amount. So the Almighty conducted the plague of the firstborn at exactly midnight. What do we learn from this? It's always the big thing. What do we learn from this? We live in three dimensions we have limitations. We can only do so much. But when we realize, we take a step back, that it's not really our doing. We're just kind of like, you know, putting our finger on it. We're, 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 we're initiating it. We're doing, we're, we're doing something. But it's really the Almighty doing. We don't have to worry about the job getting done because it's the Almighty doing it. When we think that this is an impossibility, this is an infinite task, don't worry. God's got your back on it. 
Speaking of back, we're going to have to come back to you because we got a commercial break coming up. Don't go away. we got a great story. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Hi, this is Spex Howard. The Spex Howard School of Media Arts is proud to have been a sponsor of The Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding comes from its sponsors, listeners like you help keep The Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to The Jewish Hour 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. That's 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Herschel Finman here, listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? It's January already. Hello. Happy New Year. Uh, go to Rabbi Finman and go to rabbifinman.com and hit the contact link, and you'll be able to get me. And if you're listening on rabbifinman.com, you know where you are. Just contact me. We'll wait till the end of the show. There's also archived editions of the radio show. There's these other things in which we present Judaism, and there's a very important donations page. We're back to three months. We're trying to get November, December, and now January. So it's a new month. It's a new year. Let's start it off right. Go to RabbiFinman.com, and you can uh, you can pay your donations there if you were interested. Go to JewishFerndale.com, which is a sister organization, and Jewish Ferndale is having its annual mega raffle. The first prize is a hundred thousand dollars, and you can buy a ticket there right at JewishFerndale.com. It's all one word: JewishFerndale.com, and participate in this year's raffle. Drawing is February 7th. You have to buy your ticket before then. And we'll mention it maybe a couple more times. But you'll be supporting the Jewish Hour, which is now coming up to its 27th year. We've got two months more. And we'll see if we can keep this going. The streak, 27 years. The longest-running Jewish radio program in the Detroit area. Yay. And it's all because of help with yours, like yours. So go to RabbiFinman.com. Click on the donations page. Go to jewishferndale.com, buy a raffle, however you like to do it. It's a, it's, it's a great thing. And the Almighty will shower blessing upon you. This story involves the Baal Shem Tov, who, traveling around uh, incognito, before he revealed himself as a Rebbe and a Tzaddik and a leader, came to the city of Brody, which I think, if you're not mistaken, is in Poland. But if anybody knows otherwise, you can let me know at rabbifinman.com. And there he was teaching the the, uh, the the townsfolk. When he suddenly noticed the side of his eye, he saw this older man who was kind of stooped and was carrying a burden to load. And there was this divine light hovering above him. And he said, who's that? And he says, that's Herschel Tzig. Tzig means a goat. He says, why do you call him Herschel the goat? So he said, because since his wife died, he keeps goats. And he said, I got to see. And he saw him again another day, another day. And every time he saw him, there was a divine light, like hovering around him. So he, he, he prepared himself. He fasted for three days. And then at the end of the fat third day fast, he ran into his Herschel Tzig and he said, please, I haven't eaten anything in three days. Can I come home with you and eat something? And he said, sure, come with me. They walked for an hour, which <laughs> that's the part of the story. It's like, whoa. He opened up the door and five goats jumped on Herschel. 
And he sat down and he milked the goats and he gave a couple of glasses of goat milk to the, the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov said, what gives? What do you do that's so special? And he said, oh, first the Baal Shem Tov said, I want to pay you. He said, no, for goat milk I don't charge. He says, what do you, what do, you do that's so special? He said, no, my wife died 10 years ago. And in her merit, in her memory, I have these goats, and I milk them. And when I hear somebody's sick or somebody needs the needy, I milk the goats, and I I give goat milk to them. And goat milk is very healthy. And if I don't have where to give them, I make cheese out of it. And then people I give the cheese to. And uh, so he said, "This is very commendable." He says, "What what what do you need?" He said. I have a head like a brick. What I really want to do more than anything else is to be able to learn. And the Baal Shem Tov said, I will teach you. And the Baal Shem Tov actually spent three years in the city of Brody teaching him. At first, he had a head like a brick. Nothing went in. And then one day, suddenly, it was like the skies opened up and it all made perfect sense to Herschel. And he himself grew to be one of the 36 hidden sadikim. So you never know. Keep trying. That's going to do it for us. We hope you have a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you have a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. Take care. But we keep moving on No turning back When it seems we're lost inside a Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.